Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to join us today, and we're even more grateful that you're a part of our community. If you consider yourself to be new to this community, we have a few opportunities for you to get to know who we are, how we do community, and it also gives us the opportunity to know you. So there's a few different options coming up in May. The first is our in-person option for our new to South Bend City Church table at Studebaker 112. That's our physical location here in South Bend. It'll happen right after our second gathering. There will be lunch provided for that, and so make sure to RSVP. The second option is for our long-distance community members or for our local community members that find a digital space more accessible. Our virtual New to South Bend City Church table will happen on May 8th via Zoom at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you're interested in joining us for the virtual table, be sure to RSVP so you get the Zoom link. The second thing that I wanted to let you know about is that we are looking for your help to write our Mother's Day community reading. Each year as we approach Mother's Day, we know that different people experience the holiday in different ways. For some, it's full of joy, and for others, it's painful. And for most of us, it's just downright complicated. So like previous years, we'll be offering a reading in our gatherings that's meant to hold space for all of those experiences. But this year, like I said, we'd like your help in writing it. So if you would like to be a part of that, you can jump down to the link in the show notes below and make sure to fill out those answers before May 5th to help us create a piece for our gatherings. Just so you know, everything that we receive might not make it into that final reading, but everything submitted will help us craft a moment in our liturgy that honors the various experiences of our community. All right, so our gatherings this weekend were really beautiful and meaningful. We come to the line in the creed that says, He shall come to judge. So we ask ourselves, what does it mean to believe that Jesus will return and judge? And when judgment so often evokes fear of punishment and shame and exclusion, we ask ourselves if there's other ways of understanding it. We finished our time with a time of reflection and prayer and meditation, and we offer a tangible way to jump into our community now. Before we get there, though, we have one last announcement, and I'm going to turn it over to Jay to give you an update on the Tribune Project. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's jump in with the rest of our community now. I've got one other uh, fun kind of announcement and update before we move on to our teaching for the day. Uh, Right now, believe it or not, marks the halfway point in our project that we call the Tribune Project. Uh, I know a lot of you are very familiar with this, but for the few who may not be, just a brief reminder. Way back in the fall of 2021, uh, we were looking ahead on the calendar and realizing that our lease in this room was going to come to an end, and that happens later this year. And we needed to figure out where we were going to go to call home. So we sort of scoured the community and looked for different solutions, and we discovered that right in the heart of downtown, the printing press building of the South Bend Tribune has been vacant for years now. We walked around in the building and began to think it might be the place for us. Uh, We moved into some community discernment work in the fall of 2021. A whole bunch of you helped us look at that project and think about whether it was right for us and how we would want to pursue it. One of the dominant themes of that discernment was not only does this seem like a good home for our future, but if we're going to do this, let's make sure it's a good resource for the city of South Bend. Let's make sure that that building serves a purpose that's bigger than just what happens on Sunday mornings for us. So um, having heard that and uh, sensed that it was the right thing for us to do, we moved forward. And then uh, a year ago, we gathered up financial commitments for what a bunch of us would give over two years to help fund that project. The way we're doing it, as far as buying the building, which we already did, thank you, and then renovating the building, is we're combining a mortgage with capital giving from this community in, uh, in this two-year period. So right now, we're like halfway through that giving period, and we just wanted to update you and say thank you for a few things. 
Uh, a year ago, that past April, where a bunch of us said, here's what I'm going to give over the next two years to make this happen, those commitments came in at $1.8 million, which is incredible. Uh, even more surprising and amazing to me is that right now, halfway through that, two-thirds of that number has been given. So as of today, 1.2 million of the 1.8 has already been given toward the project. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, there's been some other ways that resources have helped with the project, and we've been able to use resources to help others from the project. Uh, so for example, there's a bunch of office furniture in the building. We were able to give that to Habitat for Humanity, so that's got a new life right now. Yeah, right? We were also able to sell some things like steel barrels, a cardboard baler, trash compactor, other machinery, and um, hundreds of hours of volunteer labor have already been donated. We've been doing these work days on Saturdays in the building, and a bunch of you have shown up. You've hauled out scrap, you've painted things, you've taken fixtures off of walls, and between the stuff that we've sold and the work that you've put in, we've saved something like $150,000 on the project, which is just incredible. Uh, side note, if you want to get your hands on the project but you haven't had a chance to, the next workday is coming up right around the cor corner, Saturday, May 13th, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Now, this is a little different than previous workdays. Frankly, you all have done so much, there's not a lot left that we can do before the heavy machinery shows up and does that kind of work. Uh, but there is one thing left, which is there's a small part of the building that we're taking on ourselves as far as cleaning it up and getting it ready for use, and we're painting that space, but it's small. So if as many of you show up for this project as have shown up on other work days, it's actually like just too many bodies in the room to get the painting done, that's a good problem to have. So for this workday, if you want to paint, we're asking you to go online to southlandcitychurch.com, find the What's Happening carousel, uh, click the link for this workday, and then sign up for a shift, and that way we'll make sure that there's room for you and you can help us with the painting. That being said, the building will be open for that four-hour window from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., and we would totally invite any of you who haven't seen the building, please come on out. Just stop by for a minute. We'd love to show you the space. Just two disclaimers that have been with us since we bought it. Uh, and that is, it's not a safe space for kids still. It's still an unrenovated industrial space, uh, so no kids in the building. And two, uh, unfortunately, uh, we're not yet able to live up to our commitment about that space being accessible for everyone physically. And so if you have any mobility challenges, of course that'll be part of the renovation work. But again, we haven't renovated it yet, and so I wouldn't want you to show up and find out that it's not able to accommodate you at this time. That being said, we'd love to see you uh, on the 13th for that workday. Uh, a story that came in just last week that we wanted to share with you because it inspired us, and we want to be a community that expresses gratitude. Uh, just last week, somebody offered a new financial commitment. And so as we cross over the one-year line, they went online and, and filled out a new commitment on the form there uh, for what they want to give over the last 12 months of the project between now and next April. And the reason this story stood out to us is this is a person who lives 700 miles from South Bend. Yeah, they wrote a note there and they said um, that after feeling left behind and let down by a lot of institutions, that South Bend City Church had, had played a part in them finding their way back to God and they wanted to help out. Now, I don't share that to pat ourselves on the back. I share that um, just to like point out that we are, as a community are the recipients of really amazing generosity both from people who are right here in the room right now, and even somebody like that who, as far as I know, may never set foot in the building that they're helping to pay for. And we just want to um, recognize that with gratitude and say there's a lot of different graces and generosities that have helped make it this far. Uh, if you've already contributed in any way, maybe you've given us wisdom and advice, a lot of you stepped up 
uh, like whether you had expertise in commercial real estate or lending, uh, we're thankful for that. Uh, a lot of you have shown up for the work days and you've gotten your hands on the project. A lot of you have been praying for this project and a lot of you have given to the project. So thank you if you've helped in any way. Uh, if you've made a financial commitment but you've not been able to start giving yet, uh, now's a great time to start. Use this kind of one-year mark at the halfway point in the project as an inspiration moment to start coming through on your commitment to the project. If you've not made a commitment but you would like to, you're still totally welcome to do so. And again, this might be a great time to do that. You can just go to thetribuneproject.com. You'll learn more about the project, and there's a link there where you can fill out a form and let us know what you would like to give over the final year. We would love to welcome uh, more people who want to get in on it in the final year of giving. Um, that's the Tribune update. I would be remiss if I didn't also point out we're very grateful for the everyday giving that funds our everyday ministry. You can go to southlandcitychurch.com give and help uh, pay for the kind of everyday work that happens here. Thank you for all of that. That's the news. You guys ready to move on? Yes. Cool. Um, let me describe an experience that was common for me growing up. Uh, in most of my growing up years, my dad's job took him on the road a lot. So it wouldn't be uncommon that in a given week, dad would leave on a Monday morning and get back Friday. During the week, it meant that my poor dear mother was left to raise two young growing men on her own. And I don't know if this will surprise you or not, but there were many times when I could be what's technically known as a turd. <laughs> so my poor mom is, is raising two young boys in the house, and dad's gone for the week trying to provide for us out there doing his work. And you can imagine, right, my mom has her tactics for cultivating a good household and discipline and all that stuff, but at some point... Like, she feels a little disempowered in the experience, and she's just going to point out that reinforcements are coming, right? <laughs> and the line would frequently be something like, just wait till your dad gets home on Friday, right? This is pretty common for us growing up. And I've thought uh, back on that experience and how, frankly, I don't think it was fun for anyone, right? I think of my mom. I mean, I've not raised children, but I know especially um, when you're like a single parent in the home, whether it's for a moment or for a long stretch, um, that that could be especially challenging, I think it can also be uniquely complicated when it's like young boys with a mom in the house. And I know it wasn't fun for her to have to try to manage all of that and figure out how to bring order to all of that and for dad to be out there doing his part in providing for us while she was there managing that stuff, right? I'm certain it wasn't fun for my dad. I'm sure my dad didn't want to come home from a week on the road and walk in with his marching orders to be deal with discipline rather than just kind of enjoy reconnection, right? And frankly, it wasn't fun for me and my brother, right? That kind of dark, foreboding sense that at the end of the week, the punishments that had been accumulated all week long were coming for you. I mean, that was just a bizarre thing. I remember literally I could hear the door open upstairs if I was in the basement on a Friday afternoon. I knew that dad was home and I knew something was coming, right? Um, I tell you that story because of where we're at in a teaching series uh, on the creed. I'll connect this in just a second. Uh, let me back up. The, the series we're doing is called Old Creed, New World. This is us uh, tapping into the Apostles' Creed, this ancient document that narrates the story of Christian faith. It kind of gathers up this very rich and complex story from Scripture and invites us to not just understand it, but to give our hearts to it and to say, we believe this, we trust this, we root our, our lives in this particular picture of reality and in this way of telling the story. And so we've been moving slowly uh, through all these lines in the Creed since last fall, lines like, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That, that everything good and beautiful that's here is intended. That there's an intelligence um, 
that brings life and being to everything that we see. The creed goes on to talk about Jesus, God's only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead, and he ascended to be with the Father. And then we read this next line in the creed. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's why I tell a story about dad coming home on Fridays right there. I don't know how you feel about this. Uh, We're going to work with this sentiment today, this big idea. Now, before we get into where I really want to go with it, I just kind of want to clear out some other things that might come up for you when we see this line about judgment coming in the future, of a return and a judgment. Um, This idea of a future judgment and a return of Jesus is sometimes talked about as like the second coming of Christ. Um, Particularly in like the United States and in in Europe and the West in the last 200 years, uh, a lot of very particular theologies have been developed around this idea. Uh, Whole cultural sort of streams have flowed from some of these interpretations. Like, for example, depending on which study Bible you used growing up, uh, or which books you read from the Christian bookstore, or which movies you watched in the late 90s or early 2000s, you might have very particular thoughts about what this scene is supposed to look like when it happens, right? Did anybody grow up hearing about the rapture? Is that a word that's familiar for anyone? Yeah, this is uh, very common. Would it surprise you to find out that as far as I understand, the notion of the rapture as understood in modern Western Christian thinking was never thought or taught by anyone ever until about 200 years ago. Just going to throw that out there. I don't even have time to unpack the rest of that. But I will tell you, um, it seems that one of the things that these letters are doing where these theologies of rapture develop is the writer is borrowing imagery from the Roman imperial cult. Because the Roman imperial cult, which elevated Caesar as the son of God, who brings a a reign of peace to the world, they had these sort of um, liturgical imagination about these sort of arrivals of Caesar who would come. And they built up a very uh, kind of mythological atmosphere around the arrival of Caesar. And some of the language that we read in the New Testament that has later been interpreted in what's been called the rapture, that language actually comes from Paul or other writers lifting that from the Roman imperial cult and bringing it over into their picture of Jesus. Because what do we always do when we're talking about the big things? We take the things we've already heard and we use them to describe the things we haven't heard yet, right? We take images, metaphors. This is what we always do to reach for what's true. We take images and metaphors from the streams that we are swimming in and we carry them over into the experience that we are having of God. And that seems to be what Paul has done there. I'm not sure the rapture, as it's been described uh, in the last couple hundred years in like uh, United Kingdom and North American Christian thinking is quite what those texts had in mind. And I'm just going to move on from that now and talk about other things and just let you deal more with that later if you want. Uh, whatever you imagine the scene looking like, and, you know, whether you think it's something that happens very soon or who knows when, or maybe you don't think it happens at all. Maybe you're one of many in our community who aren't sure what you think about any of this, right? Whatever you imagine that scene looking like, when judgment is invoked, uh, there can be a lot of negative associations with that, right? When we imagine like judgment coming, it can raise notions of punishment, exclusion, and shame, right? That you're going to get called out, that I'm going to get called out, that that this sort of... um, heavy hand of justice is going to come against you 
and it's going to be used to destroy you in some sense. That can be the feeling or the fear that we have when we imagine a judgment scene. Now, I don't want to gloss over that. There are hard words about judgment in Scripture, including in the teachings of Jesus. It's not all sort of light and easy when we read about judgment in Scripture. Let me show you just one example. This is an extended teaching that Jesus gives in Matthew 25. Some of you may be familiar. This is one of the kind of famous stories that Jesus tells. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's a reference to this idea, right, that Jesus will return in glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came, excuse me, you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in person and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus ain't messing around. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Now, I put that in front of us for a few reasons, but the first is just to acknowledge there's some pretty tough language there about judgment, right? And in, in this scene, in this description, Jesus describes the thing the creed is pointing to, which is some kind of return, some kind of consummation of all this. And in that return, there, there's, um, there's a reckoning that happens where humanity is actually sifted between those who loved those in need and those who didn't. Between those who realize, like we try to say around here, everyone an icon, that every person is actually a bearer of that divine image, and to love your neighbor is to love God. There'll be those who are named for having done that and those who didn't. Now, what's interesting is, while you have that there in Scripture, it's it's pretty harrowing to hear that, I think. You have other images in Scripture that also speak of a kind of sifting or sorting or judgment, and they speak of fire. They They use a lot of the same imagery but it starts to point in a different direction. So let me give you an example here from the letter called 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. Uh, here Paul says, if anyone builds on this foundation, he's speaking of Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Let me pause here for a sec. So the day he's talking about, it's similar. It's this future time when a kind of reckoning happens, when a revealing happens, when judgment happens. And he speaks of um, building with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. As if to say that you and I are building every day of our lives, right? Uh, In our personal lives, in our relationships, and in the world at large, that we are somehow building something. 
and that we build with different quality of material, that we build with different quality. And then he says, it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So in this picture, there's a judgment, there's a reckoning on a, on a day that comes where who we are and what we have built, and you might even say what we have become, gets tested with fire. We have these kind of harrowing images of judgment. But you somehow survive. It's just a question of what we have built, what we've invested ourselves in. You might even say what we have become and how much of what we have become is able to survive that moment. Some have even argued um, that this is actually describing what it is like to stand in the pure, unmitigated, absolute presence of love. And that the purity of that love will burn off anything that isn't love. That's one way of reading this. And here, this may not sound like a pleasant experience, but it's actually a saving experience, right? For everything that's not enduring, for everything that's not good in us to be burned away so that only the things that remain, are, they're only good, right? I've been thinking about this all week and that scene that sort of Paul imagines there in 1 Corinthians 3. And I've had this image come to mind of, of a young person who goes to medical school bright-eyed, passionate, and hopeful about a sense of calling that they have. And they specifically show up at medical school because they want to become a cancer doctor. And the reason they want to become a cancer doctor is not just theoretical. Maybe somebody that they loved dearly in life died from cancer. And per perhaps even worse, maybe, maybe if medicine had been better used, it could have saved that person. And so they go to medical school with a real sense of mission because they want to heal people who have cancer. And I can imagine this student with all the best intent, but a little bit ignorant, a little bit naive, not really understanding how medicine works, shocked in the classroom one day when they discover that to heal people of cancer, they might have to cut those bodies open, discriminate between the parts of the body that are good and the parts of the body that are bad, and cut the bad out. And I imagine that person be like, no, wait, what? We're here to heal people. Why would we cut people open? We're here to heal people. Why would we discriminate what's inside them? And, of course, the teachers would say, well, how else are you going to, like, cut out the thing that's about to kill them, right? I mean, it's kind of a facetious little situation. But I think in a lot of ways it describes a lot of us and the ambivalent feelings that we have about judgment. But what if it's judgment that comes to divide in all the best kinds of ways? To divide the things that are destroying us from the things that will bring us life. To divide our violence and our injustice apart from our capacity to love one another and build something better together. There's an early church father named Gregory of Nyssa who writes about this sentiment, speaking of judgment and what will happen. He says it like this. He says, The divine judgment does not primarily bring punishment on sinners. It operates only by separating good from evil and pulling the soul toward communion and blessedness. It is the tearing apart of what has grown together which brings pain to the one who is being pulled. Have you, ever, have, you, have you ever had the evil in you, the brokenness in you, pulled apart from you, and have you felt the pain of that? Have you ever had somebody name something about you that's not good? And maybe they did it in love. Maybe they were trying to help you, but it's not a comfortable conversation, right? They confront you. They say, hey, 
I see this behavior or this pattern in your life and I don't think it's good for you or for others. That's a painful pulling that happens, right? Partially because we get attached to the parts of ourselves that aren't even good, right? The same happens at levels of family systems and neighborhoods and whole communities. Another way of thinking of it is light that shines in dark places and when the light shines in a dark place and what you see there is ugly, it's tempting to want to turn the light off, but of course the real answer is keep the light on and clean it up, right? This is a view of judgment that actually helps us heal. This is a view of judgment or discernment or even a word that's complicated, but in this case, discrimination, meaning discriminating between what is holy and what is unholy, between what is just and what is unjust, between the parts of all of us that are rooted in life and love and the parts of all of us that are rooted in death and destruction, that kind of discerning, discriminating, separating, pulling apart. This is healing work for us. This is hopeful work for us. There's a poet um, a black man who lived in the last century named Langston Hughes, who among some of his more famous work, he wrote this brief little poem. And I keep thinking about it, not just because of what the poem speaks, but knowing a little bit about his life and the experiences he had as a black man growing up in the last century, knowing just a little bit of the narrative that shapes the, poets, the poems that he wrote. And in this, this short little poem, the last half of the poem, the second half of it, he says this. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two, and see what worms are eating at the Rhine. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two, and see what worms are eating at the Rhine. This too is a vision of judgment, of revealing, cutting things open, and seeing what it is that is rotting the world, and what it is that's rotting you and me. You don't do this because you hate the fruit, you do it to protect the fruit, right? It's interesting, uh, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, which come to us from the experience of the Israelite people who, through most of their history there, experienced incredible injustice and marginalization, whether it was their enslavement in Egypt or later experiences of exile and occupation. And when you read the way that um, these people spoke of judgment, they often, you might, maybe even more often, they, they seek judgment. They beg God for it. They cry out for it. And they pray prayers looking forward to judgment. They say, like, God, would you come judge? God, would you please show up, arrive, do some judging here? Because they had a deep conviction that when God did some judging, things would be set right. That their experience of marginalization and suffering would be addressed finally. That the worm that rots the fruit would be put to death so that good things could grow again for them and for the world. A lot of their prayers sound a little bit like the first half of Langston's poem, where he says this, I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind? I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind? This leads us perhaps not so much to resist judgment, but to long for it. And maybe to ask why it's taking so long. And that's a very biblical expression. Why does it take so long? Why are we still waiting here for this? Now, there are um, little hints at that. Jesus tells stories about a field planted with both wheat and tares. Tares is a weed that looks like wheat. And it's a sort of 
complicated field where the good and the bad grow side by side, and one of the workers suggests that they pull out all the tares, but the, the owner of the property says no, because that'll actually disrupt the wheat too, and so later when the time is right, we'll be able to separate these. I, I don't entirely know what he means by that, but he speaks to it. He seems to say, yeah, there, there is um, an impatience in us that doesn't entirely understand the timing of God and why it is that we have to endure for so long in a world where we are still waiting for things to become good and beautiful and kind. But even while we wait, what we see in Scripture points to at least a couple of things that we can do. The first thing that we can do, I think, is people who could slowly move from fearing judgment to longing for it, to longing for God to set things right in us and in the world. The first thing that we could do is just name what it is that needs judged. Sometimes this is an act of simple truth-telling between you and a trusted confidant where you name in your own life some of the things that need pulled, separated, some of the behaviors or patterns or attachments or views in your own life that aren't making things better for you or for others. Naming it can be really helpful. And maybe it won't get fixed overnight, but naming it's a really good start. And sometimes there are things to name on larger levels, on the level of neighborhoods and communities and whole countries and the whole world, right? Uh, a really painful example this week is not just that gun violence continues to wreak havoc in the world at large, and especially here in the United States, where we're having a really hard time bringing our best intelligence to the kind of policies that could actually do something about it. But right here in the city of South Bend, where earlier this week, a young man named Tyon, 11 years old, was shot and killed. And I don't have many good answers for that, but I can't imagine being in a church on a Sunday morning in South Bend that is learning to long for the God who sets things right and not name this really awful thing that's happened this week. Um, naming these things is important. In a world where people kill each other with guns, we should long for the right kind of judgment, for the kind of sifting and sorting, for the kind of putting to right things that are wrong. We should long for the right kind of judgment in a world where that happens. We should long for judgment on systems and power structures that perpetuate these acts of violence. We should long for judgment on the part of all of us that is somehow expressed in a world that is violent. We should long for judgment on those things so that the best of us, the truest of us, the good in us could be sifted and pulled apart from the part of us that keeps creating a world where these things happen. Also, we can move toward that justice even now. You know, when Jesus tells that story in Matthew 25, I don't have time today to explain to you why I don't actually think that it's kind of that destroying wrath that awaits us in the end. I don't have time to explain my own kind of theological understanding there today. But what I hear in that parable is, is a reminder that even now, we can live in a way that accords with the world once it is judged and set right. Or we can live in a world that accords with things as they are broken right now. We can move toward that justice. Sometimes that moving toward justice um, is how we try to tackle like big structural and systemic things that's important. Sometimes moving toward that justice is even in the things that feel small. But it's an act of paying attention to a world that still needs to be judged. Uh, this case, with the death of Tyron, we were made aware uh, just, uh, like a day or two ago uh, that there was a, a sort of request out there from the school that Tyon attended 
Um, these are students and teachers and staffers and administrators and parents who are you know, having to go right back to school bearing the grief and trauma that comes with the shooting death of one of their own. And the, re the request, and this might sound, I don't know if this sounds meaningful to you or a little too simple, but the request was just that like a really good meal would bring a, a small bit of comfort uh, to that school this week. And so we reached out, and what we heard back from the administrators there was that they would really appreciate that, and that the student's specific request was Chick-fil-A. And so, um, yeah, so we're making arrangements. Just to, it's just a little act of love, just to say, hey, we see you. And so you can be a part of that. Uh, we've got a special fund set up online for one week only. So just for this week, if you go to southandcitychurch.com slash give, click through, and there's a point on the giving uh, form there where you can pull out the different funds, and there's like the general fund and the Tribune fund. Just select the Jefferson Traditional Fund, and everything that you give will go toward providing that meal. If more money is given than we need to provide the meal, we'll just give the rest of it to those uh, leaders there at the school, and they'll use that for other things that are good for those students. Now, I know that uh, in the wake of something like a shooting death of an 11-year-old, a, a meal might seem small. In some ways, I don't think it's small. In other ways, it is. I get that. If it's just on us, you and me, if it's just on us, our species, if it's just on us to move this whole thing toward healing, toward its better end, if it's just on us to do it, yeah, I'm not sure the small things really do matter. I'm not sure they make much difference. I'm not sure we should take much comfort in them. But if we believe that one day he shall come to judge the living and the dead, if we believe that one day he will set things right, if we believe that one day there will be a final sorting out and all that is dark and broken, all that reeks of death will finally be put to death while we are rescued from those things and brought forward. If we believe that it's not just on us, that we're not just like that myth of Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the hill on his own only for it to like roll back down, up and down. If we believe that we're being grafted into a larger story where someone, something beyond us, does ultimately take responsibility for the conclusion of this story, then even the small things are somehow grafted into that story. They're somehow woven into that larger movement toward healing. Even the small things are somehow a part of uh, the good judging that we are looking for, where we invest our lives, our hearts, our hopes, not in the world as the way things are right now, but in the world as they will be one day, because he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Thank God he will judge. Um, so I know that today we probably have some who find great hope in the idea that he will come to judge, that he will come to set things right. There are others who maybe think, perhaps why is it taking so long? And the thing perhaps you feel most strongly right now is um, disillusionment or discontent. Uh, for others, the whole story we're talking about is one you're not sure you believe in, and that's okay, too. We're really glad that we're in community together here today. But we wanted to take some time to process and pray um, to allow some of our longings and some of our hopes to coexist, to allow some of our questions, some of our faith to coexist here uh, for a moment. And so Mariah is going to lead us in a, a sort of sequence of ways to reflect uh, today. Uh, a little bit later, when she lets you know, there'll be a chance if you'd like to actually come forward and light a candle. And these candles might be for us a few different things. 
Uh, the candle might be a symbol for you of the thing that needs judged, the thing that you long to see set right. It might be something in your personal life or your family system that's very broken. It might be something in the world at large, perhaps uh, in our community or our politics, and you want to light a candle just to give witness to the fact that some of these things need judged and they haven't been judged yet. Uh, for others, you might want to light a candle as an act of vigilance. Throughout the New Testament, when there are stories told, uh, parables given of longing and waiting for that day in the future, sometimes the surrounding metaphor is one of waiting through the night and remaining vigilant. And Jesus tells stories of some who fall asleep and others who stay awake. And maybe you'll want to light a candle to say, I want to be someone who keeps my eyes open and stays awake, looking there on the horizon for that judgment that we long for. And then... You know, wherever you set your sights tends to be where you go. And so you might find that that vision moves you in the direction of some act of healing in the here and now. Um, the candle might just be uh, an expression of a groaning that you don't have a description or words for, but you just sense that you want to do something more than sit there and to light a candle itself would simply be the content of your prayer. So we'll take a minute now. Uh, Mariah will lead us, and she'll let you know in a moment when, if you'd like, you can come forward to light a candle. We're going to start this time by just centering ourselves in the here and the now. So find a position that's comfortable for you, whether that's feet flat on the floor, maybe the palms of your hands resting on your knees. Just take a couple deep breaths in and out. Breathing in and out. If you feel comfortable, go ahead and close your eyes if you haven't already. Go to a safe space. A space that you feel completely comfortable being yourself. A space that you can ignore the noises of the room. As you find that space and you enter that space, continue to breathe in and out, feeling your heart beating in your chest. And a few reminders for this time. Release yourself from the tyranny of spiritual certainty. Remember that doubt is not a threat to faith but it's faith that has finally taken off its mask. And if you find it difficult to believe in God or anything else in this season, that is okay. You've seen death and endured sorrow, and to believe is to risk. Remember that doubt doesn't alienate you from the divine. It often means that you're approaching it. With those thoughts in mind, and as you continue to breathe in and out, there are some prompts that I'm going to lead you through. As you inhale, say within yourself, I am free to not know. And as you exhale, I can rest in the mystery. Inhale, I am free to not know. 
exhale, I can rest in the mystery. As you continue to breathe in and out, we're just going to sit with that for a minute. Inhale, I am free to not know. Exhale, I can rest in the mystery. As this next song is played, you can continue to stay in that space, breathing in and out through those prompts. Or this is the time where you can light a candle. You can pull out your phone and go to that give page and give if that's an act that you want to engage in today. Open your notes app and write down your questions or your hopes for the world. But these next few minutes are yours to engage how you wish.
silent Your voice is in the winds The hands that made the heavens Will heal the storm within I have so many questions I don't know where to begin If you were there at the beginning You already through a, a prayer you can think of it as a meditation or a reading but if you're able and willing would you join in as we read this together God of frail belief when we take account of the tragedies of the world it's difficult for us to believe there is a powerful and loving God with us there is so much we wish you would intervene in to bring justice and healing now. We trust that you are a God who is patient with these doubts, a God who is not threatened by our unbelief, but draws near to us in it. Help us toward an understanding of you that includes tension and mystery. Let us be empathetic with our souls which have endured so much suffering and have a right to ask deep questions of the divine. But as we do, let us find an empathy for you, a God who is no stranger to suffering, but endures all things with us, that we might find full liberation. Let our doubts leap us deeper intimacy with the divine as we tell the truth of the questions that plague us. Amen. There's a priest named Daniel Berrigan who uh, in the last several decades would be a pretty credible uh, reference point for what it looks like to take Jesus' teachings really seriously. Somebody giving his life and his energy to invest in the world that we long for uh, and to critique the world as it is right now. And he did so at great cost to himself. And he was asked once in an interview, how do you hold on to hope? And his answer was, by doing hopeful things. I think a lot of us have a picture of hope that's it's like a feeling. We, we hope that hope is a feeling that would come upon us. Um, but some of the wise teachers I keep listening to say hope tends to be more something that you do. And, and, 
an act that you choose and then perhaps your heart follows that lead and finds itself standing on a firmer ground of belief about where everything is headed. And it strikes me that in fact singing uh, is a hopeful thing to do. Now nobody wants to be inauthentic, I get that, and like there are days when we might put a song in the room that you just don't believe in or feel and we never want to coerce anyone to sing anything. And that's true right now as well. Uh, but that being said, we actually began this gathering with a song that's quite hopeful. And we thought that we would come back to it at the end of all of this. And maybe as we put the song in the room, you feel it deeply and, you, and for that reason you'll want to sing it. But for others, could I just suggest that, that maybe to actually put these words on your lips and to sing them is to do a hopeful thing. And you might find that your heart follows the lead of your voice as we sing it. And so if you'd like, and if you're able, why don't you stand to your feet and Mariah will lead this uh, song for us now. feels like a hopeful thing for you to do, don't forget uh, this week sometime you can go and give for uh, Jefferson Traditional School and we'll give all those resources to the school there. We'd love to send them a really big gift of love and encouragement this week. And that being said, if you, like Brother Langston, are tired of waiting for the world to become good and beautiful and kind, may you know that you're not alone. And yet, may we be those who hope and trust, who long for and look forward to the day when the best kind of judgment will be brought upon the world, sifting our lives and pulling the good out and leaving all that death behind. May grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.